Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? In the movie Spies Like Us, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are two government bureaucrats that fumbled their way into a secret plot by the intelligence services and rogue military officials to usurp presidential decision-making on nuclear weapons and national security? Is this the dreaded deep state that we've been warned about? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation and counterproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in the podcast studio slash our respective basements over Zoom with my co-host Gabe. Gabe, welcome to the show. Hey Tim, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, what do you do? Why are you on this podcast? I don't know. I have this friend who, you know, likes to make me watch uh, low quality movies that involve super technical things about nuclear weapons. And I guess I hate myself. So I just <laughs> I just go along with it. I'm glad I was able to find this, this special soul to share this with. I appreciate this and your patience. You definitely found a doozy for this one. <laughs> well, this doozy is the 1985 comedy Spies Like Us, which IMDb.com describes as Two bumbling government employees think that they are U.S. spies, only to discover that they are actually decoys for nuclear war. Have you heard of this movie before I asked you to watch it for the podcast? I'd heard of the title. I don't know if I could say I was intimately familiar with the details. This was kind of from that catalog. So I, this is the same year I was born. I think you might have been born 1985 also. Uh, one year before, yeah. One year before. So it, yeah, it's like that kind of... Before I was obviously aware, and I, I've missed a lot of the movies from this era, so I'm glad to kind of be working through the 80s catalog, although I don't know if this is the one that I'd recommend <laughs> people start on. Well, I saw it in college, and I remember liking it in college. We'll, we'll talk about the you know, the ratings at the end, and I think you've already kind of tipped your hand to what you you feel about <laughs> it, but I did remember liking it a lot more in college, and I did remember that it had a zany new plot, especially near the of end. Course. So, of, of course, course. it's why it gets on this podcast. Yeah. I, I mean, I was surprised because di directed by John Landis, who has some pretty heavy... I mean, heavy credits to his name, right? Yeah, Blues Brothers, Animal House. Uh, I mean, he even directed the Michael Jackson Thriller music video. So he he's pretty good, and it's got a great cast, right? We've got Dan Aykroyd, we've got Chevy Chase, a bunch of cameos from, from kind of big-name people, including Bob Hope. The reason why he's in this is because this movie is an homage to a series of seven different road adventure movies that Bob Hope did with Bing Crosby. I guess they okay. were called the Road 2 series. They took their talents to places like Singapore, Bali, Hong Kong, Zanzibar, and Alaska, and a couple other places like that. Were those also kind of spy? Were they playing kind of spies or no? No, I think one of them was like a smart huckster guy, and one was kind of more of a straight comedy person. Uh, um, okay. It wasn't a one-to-one -one characteristic type thing for spies like us. I don't think any of them had nuke plots either. Okay, gotcha. Well, for this one at least, so, so you said Dan Aykroyd, he plays Austin Milbarge, who's this like brilliant you know tinker analyst code breaker jack of all trades who works in the basement of the pentagon right mm -hmm. and then chevy chase emmett fitzhume who's kind of his partner uh for this he's he's more of like the playboy uh he works in the state department pr team and 
he wants to be a spy, but he's kind of a slacker and thinks he can just coast on his his family's connection to the intelligence business. Right, and his ability to seduce his supervisor uh, <laughs> right. and, and just kind of bribe his way through things. It doesn't really work out that all well for him. This was written by Aykroyd as well as his partner, Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas is great. He's from SCTV. Also makes good hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Paul McCartney from The Beatles. I mean, he did the the music video for the movie. Not necessarily his best work, but I mean, there's a lot Jeez. of really quality people attached to this. Yeah, they had. I'm surprised because usually this thing is garbage in, garbage out. But they actually had some good good stuff to work with here. So it's an interesting mix here. Um, the movie made quite a bit of money. Uh, made over seventy seven million on a twenty two million dollar budget, uh, which is certainly you know pretty good for a comedy. Critics didn't like it so much. Rotten Tomatoes still gives it a thirty two percent fresh rating. The summary of Rotten uh, Rotten Tomatoes is: Despite the comedy prowess of its director and two leads, Spies Like Us appears to disavow all knowledge of how to make this viewer laugh. Ouch. That's that's yeah that's that's a sick burn right there. Yeah, let's get into it. There's two main questions that I was thinking that we were talking that we should talk about over the course of this episode. One, the movie plot involves a road mobile intercontinental ballistic missile launcher. So let's talk a little bit about uh, why did Russia build these things while the United States decided to play with a different set of toys. And two, how did this movie capture the high stakes Cold War intrigue between two nuclear armed superpowers when you have you know basically two characters here bumbling their way through a spy crisis? Uh, so let's see how well it kind of captures some of those topics. So let's run through the plot of this movie. Uh, and as usual, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen this movie from 1985, if you're like Gabe and maybe you were born in that year, uh, it is available for streaming on like Amazon Prime. I don't know where you picked it up, Gabe. Sometimes it's on Netflix, but it wasn't on Yeah, I, I rented it on Amazon Prime for $3. So that's $3 I'm never getting back. But I do I do it, I do it for you, Tim. I'll then mow you. Um, it's yeah, it's a, it's a tax write-off for me. So nice. This is Emmett Fitzhume. He's an information officer at State. Started there in '74. He's a mail boy. His father got him his job. This is Austin Millbarge. He's a repair supervisor in DIA's code-breaking arm at the Pentagon. He's good with hardware. He's got some Russian. They're the best men we have. Two teams. One to do the job, the other to be a diversion. You mean decoys? Exactly. We've got a very special assignment for you two. Foreign service? Yes. Undercover work? Yes. I'm a Fitzhugh. Austin Milbarge. When do we begin our training? Right away. Pakistan? We're Americans! Cut the sucker. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Will you marry me? Chevy Chase. Dan Aykroyd. So we open the movie on an ominous shot of something huge barreling through a wooded landscape knocking over trees. What could this possibly be, Gabe? A giant? No. A dinosaur? Nope. Well, what is it? It is a Soviet road mobile nuclear missile that is traveling nose cone first through the forest. Doesn't exactly seem safe, but you know it's ominous, right? Right, and they but they couldn't put the no trees were harmed during the making of this film. <laughs> oh no! Several trees were completely destroyed. Much of the rainforest. So this movie calls this thing the SS fifty road mobile intercontinental ballistic missile ICBM. It's a launching system, and it was appears to be some sort of new deployment. 
by the Soviet Union. So I've been watching movies now with you for a while. So whenever I hear jargon terms or titles of weapons, I always think, is this real or is this fake? So go ahead, Tim. Is this a real real weapon or fake weapon name? So there is no exact system called the SS-50, but there, the movie came out in 1985. Okay. And the SS-25 weapon system, a Soviet mobile missile launcher, the first of its kind to launch these kind of long-range ICBMs, things that can hit from Russia, hit the United States. These started their service life also in 1985. So pretty pretty good timing on the part of the movie. Now, the development of this system started in 1977, but there were news reports because they started to do flight tests and things in 1983. So the movie clearly was watching the news. Dave Thomas and Dan Aykroyd, when they were uh, writing this, they, they picked up on this and they timed their movie pretty well. Gotcha, gotcha. So the nickname for the SS-25, NATO always used to give a name for their weapon systems. The SS-25 was nicknamed the Sickle by the U.S. and NATO. Now, the, the SS-50 in the movie does not seem to have a nickname. You got one for us, Gabe? What do you want to call it? We can stick with the like the to- the yard tool genre, so maybe like Weed Whacker or something like that. <laughs> not, or, uh, not, hammer. Right? not Hammer yeah. and Sickle? No, yeah, well, maybe, maybe. I, I like the yard, uh, the landscaping um, vibe going on there. Well, it does knock over trees with a vengeance, so... I there like, you go. I like it. There I like Weed Whacker. <laughs> exactly. So we'll talk more in the episode about the Russian road mobile ICBM system and why the Soviet Union built so many of them in the U.S. decided not to, but we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, near the end of the episode. Fortunately for the U.S., there's a U.S. spy satellite that's taking these amazing photos in space of the SS-50, and these photos are beamed down to some kind of random warehouse disguised as the Ace Tomato Company in Washington, D.C. This kind of looked like it was over by like uh, the Main Street Fish Market, right? Actually, it was at uh, Union Market. Yeah, for those in the D.C. area, this is now, it's being gentrified, and there's this big, you know, uh, hipster market there, but but it was like all the wholesale, the food wholesalers, and so it's actually kind of cool. This actually caught my attention. My wife and I go to Union Market every now and then for food. It caught my attention. Like back in the day, this was actually a place for like real working restaurant industry people instead of upper middle class millennials like <laughs> ourselves. Uh, it also has a good drive-in uh, movie theater that they they put up on the the wall. My wife and I saw uh, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, nice! Um, not this movie, unfortunately. And apparently, it's also a place for where spies hang out in these kind of nondescript buildings. Uh, Ace Tomato Company is probably a reference to the United Fruit Company, which is a organization. It's a real fruit company. I think now it's actually Chiquita Banana. Really? But the CIA worked with them to do some pretty nasty stuff in Latin America during the Cold War. So, little inside joke. Oh wow! We see a guy in a suit. He handcuffs himself to a suitcase, briefcase, and he brings the photos to an office in D.C. with two other guys in suits, and they talk about the spy satellite program. It's actually a pretty funny scene because they make the guy who has his hand handcuffed to the briefcase go in a closet and, like, have the chain go through the door. I, I kind of thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, there are all these jokes, and this is where I start to think, okay, it's going to be kind of a zany, silly movie. They have some jokes where... They pull the briefcase and the guy's like chained to it, so they drag him. But I, I was starting to get a little excited here, but it didn't work out too well. It's the first joke of the movie, and it's the I'd probably yeah. it's one of the two best jokes in the movie. It, la- it landed. It landed. These two people appear to be, you know, 
CIA type people. I think they're actually from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and they are joined in this kind of secret meeting by two other military officers. It's kind of taking place in like a, a Georgetown row house, and these two military officials and the intelligence officers uh, they talk about a secret off the books, even from Congress program. We don't really know what it is yet, but they're worried about le- to- leaks to the from the program to the Soviet Union because uh, two of their top crew spies recently were killed in the course of this mission of operation um one of the generals in this really looks a lot like general jack d ripper from dr strangelove so we know he's probably not up to any good but anyways the the people are are chatting they want this mission to continue uh so they decide they need to send out some more people they have a new approach this time right they're going to form two teams of spies uh one group that are going to be like the, the the experts right the the best spies in in the world and then they want another crew of two people who are kind of like schlumps people who no one would miss maybe they can do a little bit of stuff but they're going to be decoys to draw heat away from the the real team where but where are they going to get people like this right they're going to have to get some some sort of losers who are, are, are dumb enough to be part of this program but not really realize that something else is going on Cut to the scene of chevy chase playing emmett Fitzhume. he's i guess at the state department and He's at work and he's kind of like watching, he was watching some clip of like Ronald Reagan singing (laughs) an old thing from the fifties or whatever. And you know, his, his colleagues are all upset with him for not paying attention and, but they're discussing that he's going to take the foreign service exam, uh, which is what, you know, what allows you to enter the foreign service. And from what I understand, a difficult test. Yeah. He's talking to the guy and he's like, Oh, you don't need to study. These questions are straightforward. Don't worry about it. Just, just go into it. You know? Yeah, he's a, he's an information officer, which is someone who, you know, has press conferences and should know everything that's going on in his region. He has this really kind of funny scene where he does hold a press conference and he doesn't obviously know any of the answers. So he just basically just basically like deflects and even has to the point where he like pretends the microphone's not working and he's trying to talk and then, OK, I've got to go. Uh, the United States government would never have, if the president, our president, had not, and as far as I know, that's the way it'll always be. Is that clear? What about the report? Then? How can you say we aren't spending millions on spraying when the International Wheat Board has reported, and I quote, extensive contamination in the grain fields of southern Argentina? The state ever. Microphone's cutting out on us, I'm awfully sorry. However, unstate, so I must go. This is some classic Chevy Chase, by the way. That cut, I, yeah, he, he does. Every now and then, he gets that good kind of silliness uh, that he has. The State Department has this program called the Foreign Service, and you can become a Foreign Service officer. I'm pretty sure Foreign Service officers don't also become spies. You know, these are the people who like will work at an embassy. Now, yeah. I'm sure there are people who work and pretend to be people who work at embassies that are also spies. You know, other countries do it, and so do we. But it's not like if you want to join that program, you become, you know, you take the FSO test. You yeah. do something else, too. He, he clearly wants to do something in overseas and undercover. And it's just kind of weird that he, like, thinks this is the path to do this. But whatever he's doing, he's not studying. He instead thinks he can pass it because he will uh, seduce his supervisor. And it, that doesn't work. We meet another character. We meet Dan Aykroyd. He plays Austin Milbarge. He is a brilliant, as we said, code breaker. He's working in the basement of the Pentagon. He doesn't really want to be there. He wants to be some sort of undercover foreign service officer, too. His boss is pretty terrible, even though um, Austin is really smart and is able to, like, break the codes using things out of a Cracker Jack box and cereal box. 
That was a static-filled, triple-scrambled microwave transmission between two soldiers talking in Mandarin Chinese. Well, the Chinese were only using a simple, polyphonetically grouped 20-square-digit key transposed in booster-photonic form with multiple nulls. They broke it with this. A Drogon's decoder wheel? They put these things into cereal boxes for kids. Yeah, I found it in a box of, uh, Lucky Charms. Is essentially all of his work is being who's taking credit for it, but his boss and his boss wants to keep them there as opposed to maybe Austin just quits and applies to another job. But instead, boss is like, no, you have the foreign service exam. It's tomorrow. You didn't study at all. Uh, you're definitely going to fail this and have to stay here. It, this, it definitely sets up, you know, Dan Aykroyd as, as kind of the smart, you know, he's the, the not the goofus. Uh, he's the gallant of yes. goofus and gallant. So um, it, you can kind of see where this is setting up. You got Chevy Chase is kind of the, the screw up at the sweet talker and Dan Aykroyd is the uh, the kind of brains, but not doing the best he can with them. Now, this is one year after Ghostbusters when Dan Aykroyd played Ray Stance and Ghostbusters. He was also a pretty similar character, like pretty smart, yeah. but also, hey, I'm from New York. I'm, I'm going to cut some corners and get stuff done, but I'm also, I know what I'm talking about when I need to. It's kind of a yeah. very similar character. Yeah, I agree. It de I definitely had shades of that. I think it worked to better effect in Ghostbusters than this movie, though. Yes, uh, most definitely. Um, speaking of things that didn't work all that well, uh, you get to the actual test, the Foreign Service exam test. Proctor of this examination is Frank Oz, which is always fun to see Frank Oz pop up in yeah. some of these things, the voice of Yoda. <laughs> Immediately, Chevy Chase tries to bribe him with $1,000, but that doesn't work. Chevy Chase uh, then starts to like basically ask Aykroyd, because they're sitting next to each other, they're both late to the exam. Chevy Chase essentially asks for help during the exam, like tries to cheat, but in these like really blatant ways, he comes in right with a eye patch. And like a, a, a cast that's a fake cast on his arm, essentially doing every kind of trick you can possibly do because the eye patch actually has like notes hidden, I think, uh, yeah, for the yeah. test. And he has like this, the, the, yeah, the fake arm. He like pulls it out and there's like answers in the sleeve. And it, it, this was also, I, I enjoyed this. And I thought, yeah, the, the Chevy Chase, once again, uh, kind of physical comedy worked pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, though, that one of the questions that he tries to get an answer for from Dan Aykroyd is, what is KGB? So I, I don't understand why Dan Aykroyd's character, Austin, he actually helps him give him the answer to it. And I'm like, why? Like, he's the good, like, the studious guy. Why is he helping this, like, schmuck? Because the, the charisma and pure charm of Chevy Chase. I mean, if Chevy Chase asked you to help him cheat at when he was, say, maybe, like, at a community college, for example, um, <laughs> you would definitely help him, wouldn't you? I would do a lot of things if Chevy Chase asked me to, probably. <laughs> it doesn't work out for them. They they get caught in, you know, hilarious ways. They get caught cheating on the exam, but they're exactly the two schlumps that the people behind the scenes, the two intelligence officers and military, rogue military people, want for their program. Because they clearly have some skills. You know, like you mentioned, one of them's a pretty sm smart talker, quick on his feet, and the other is capable and, and actually speaks a little bit of Russian. They're perfect for the program. They're smart, but also very disposable and likely would not figure out what was happening. Yeah, exactly. They're happy to get the promotion, even though they don't they don't know that it's fake, and they're immediately thrown into training. You want to talk a little bit about the scene where they're kind of starting their training, uh, which is spy training, but it really does kind of seem a lot like they're becoming members of the Army's special forces or astronauts. Yeah. I didn't understand what this was. So they, they put them on a plane with all these para jumpers. And of course, Austin and Emmett are like, well, we're not going to have to jump out of this plane, are we? And of course, they get, you know, thrown out. So they parachute into these woods. 
And then these spotlights come on and all these ninjas come out. They're about to fight these ninjas. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And this guy, um, this guy comes out, he's like the drill sergeant, training master, whatever. And he's like, you know, why aren't you prepared for this? And like, we're going to put you through intense training. And it goes through this, this whole like kind of montage-ish kind of thing of these like increasingly ridiculous training things. It starts with an obstacle course. They start like setting off explosives all Mm -hmm. over and nobody's like acting like anything's different. Then they have to go into like a bog with people shooting at them. Then they have to get like shot with flamethrowers. They go in the G-Force machine like astronauts would be in. And just like silly non, I guess it's, it's trying to be like a, a spoof of the basic training montage, but it just was like weird stuff. It didn't work for me. I just kept wondering, I know it's a joke, but I'm like, I'm, like this just doesn't seem like spy work. This seems like if you wanted to become a member of SEAL Team 6. Yeah, exactly. But there is one really funny joke in there where they get put into some, they look like, it looks like an airplane. And then they say, okay, we're about to start the radical vertical impact simulation and then they just basically put them in this airplane that has no wings and they just drop them off like a 50 foot drop yeah i thought that was very funny you didn't you didn't like that as an airplane guy no it did not land for me i don't i i can Uh, see why that would tickle your fancy but yeah maybe it it was it it was bad (laughs) it was bad memories of my pilot training that that must have been it Uh, you probably never passed radical verticals i didn't pass it yeah that was a hard one. Well, anyways, I guess they pass because Austin and Emin are sent to Pakistan. And they, of course, end up crashing into a village in Pakistan. They get thrown out of the back of an airplane again. Uh, not just any airplane, right? Yeah, this was, okay, My probably my favorite part of the movie... As you know, I like to talk about airplanes and sometimes hijack this podcast. You like to take the super uh, critical angle of attack on when we talk about things? I do, I do. One of my favorite airplanes is a C-119 flying boxcar. Uh, an old like twin empennage propeller plane that I just think it looks so cool. It's in that movie, uh, the remake of Flight of the Phoenix. And um, yeah, that was my favorite thing. I got to see the flying boxcar. I'm like, all right, it, it at least gets one star for that for me. So that was cool. The nickname was the Flying Boxcar. Flying Boxcar. Well, yeah. Was so the other plane, other than the Enola Gay, which dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, the other B twenty nine bomber that dropped the bomb, the atomic bomb on Nagasaki, it was actually nicknamed Boxcar. It was B O C K S C A R. Kind of a funny little connection there, I guess. There you go. But not, yeah, not, 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 not the same plane. So they get dropped off in Pakistan. They're worried because they dropped onto a village and they're worried people are about to shoot them with AK-47s, but they're met, fortunately, by their local contacts. But it turns out these local contacts are actually KGB Russian agents, uh, which are there to, I guess they've, they figured out uh, that this team is here. They don't know that it's the decoy team, but fortunately uh, for the our uh, team of heroes, quote unquote, Ackroyd dif- discovers that one of the Russians is wearing a Timex knockoff watch that was made in russia so they they get the drop on them they steal their jeep then of course the jeep is captured by afghan freedom fighters because it's the 1980s and we're in afghanistan and all that great stuff um we're kind of still in afghanistan i guess fortunately it's a lot of these like oh no we're captured now we're about to be saved kind of moments in this movie then the team is saved by these two doctors in a makeshift hospital and the reason why they're able to do this is because Ackroyd and chevy chase pretend to be these famous surgeons yeah they're 
they're like um they're in some village where these doctors are providing you know it's like doctors without borders mm-hmm. providing medical care they they kind of pose as these uh as these famous doctors there's this like cringeworthy scene with chevy chase and one of the female doctors where she's like oh i've read all your papers and i'm so enamored by you and of course chevy chase takes the opportunity to uh fondle her and just it's just bad it doesn't hold up well yeah um, that's a great thing like seduce her yeah exactly however it is before that awful stuff happens there is one of the funniest scenes in the movie which is it's it's chevy chase and Aykroyd. they're pretending to be doctors and they're in a tent with like five or six other doctors and they all do the doctor like you know like you would walk up to someone and say hi doctor and the other one would respond with doctor but of course they have to do it like 15 times in the movie and then they do it again so it becomes this like doctor 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 and doctor well we miss anyone it's very like Les- Leslie Nielsen esque, like yeah, airplane esque kind of thing. And then the best line is, as soon as everybody leaves the tent, like Ackroyd turns to Chevy Chase and says, "We're not doctors." <laughs> it's very, very funny. Yeah, Bob Hope makes a cameo. He like he he hits a golf ball and it's like, "Oh, can I play through?" It, it's very yeah. random. With I, I mean, I I I know the name Bob Hope, but I just had no idea what that cameo was until you told me about that. So that makes sense. But anyways, uh. More hijinks ensue. They they have to do like surgery on a con, um, a local con's brother. I think they said and it doesn't go well. The con dies, and they have to escape. And of course, they do. They're continuing to go somewhere back in the United States. We meet those intelligence officers. They go to meet up with the military, and they do it at a weird place, right? They do it like this abandoned drive-in movie theater in the middle of nowhere. And it turns out that's a secret military base for some sort of weapon system that they call the WAMP. I don't think it stands for anything, but it did remind me of, I guess this was probably somewhat around the time when War Games came out, this computer AI system that takes over our nuclear forces is called the Whomper. And I kept thinking that maybe the WAMP WAMP was a reference to the Whomper, but I have no idea if that actually is the case. Um, we learned that the DIA agents and the military people are running this kind of secret program that costs $60 billion, and it's a Star Wars missile defense system. The Star Wars is what the media called Ronald Reagan's space-based laser and kinetic uh, kill vehicle system that he wanted to design to shoot down incoming enemy missiles when they were in space. I'm not really sure why there's so much cloak and dagger stuff going on with this military program because it sounds like they're even keeping it off the books from the president yeah congress certainly gave a pretty decent amount of money to the reagan administration to build star wars but whatever the whole drive-in theater is this sort of space-based laser system the people from the beginning of the movie these two dia agents and so they decide they're going to reassign the team uh emin and austin to go into the soviet district in tajikistan mm-hmm. which by the way very interesting how this was very topical at the time with the soviet afghan war and all that Modern viewer, it, it doesn't necessarily hold up where you have to do a little bit of reading to familiarize yourself. I know I, I just read a little bit about that, uh, but I didn't realize that this was actually going on at that time. So it makes sense that 
Yeah. A lot of this is in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, this area. Well, it's back in the news now with the uh, reports of Russian intelligence agencies potentially paying a bounty to kill American and, and coalition troops. Exactly. This movie is a little bit of the other side of that when the United States was supportive of Afghan fighters against the Soviet Union. In a weird way, this movie was is kind of timely. As you mentioned Emmett and Austin, they're, they're going to the border. They meet up again for a second with the doctor team that we met, uh, the woman that Chevy Chase was trying to put the moves on. He takes the opportunity to sexually harass her a little bit again. Sure, because why not? Uh, she's actually one of the spies from the A-team, the, the good team that they're supposed to be the decoys for. But anyways, uh, the main stuff here before we get into the new bit here is that Austin and Emmett, they run into the Soviet police on the road. Austin runs away. Emmett just kind of like gives up. He's captured, I think, in a pretty funny interrogation scene by the Russian police. They like, they threaten to like beat him up. Uh, at one point, they're like, I'm going to cut your fingers off. And then one of the other guys punches Jeffy Chase and he says, why would you punch me? He's going to cut my fingers off. <laughs> He doesn't give up the mission because he doesn't know what the mission even is. He just says that he's there to assassinate the premiere, uh, which is pretty funny. I really like this scene, actually, because it's kind of like they're getting pulled over by, like, highway. It's mm-hmm. like being pulled over by highway patrol. Um, so it's like a cop car with, like, flashing lights, but there's Russian stuff on the side and the people coming out were Russian. It, it was actually kind of cool. And actually, another bright spot of this movie for me was in a lot of these movies, the Russian is very, like kind of you can hear the accent and it's just speaking english with russian russian accents here it seems like they actually had russian actors speaking russian and there's not a lot of subtitles so you kind of are lost a little bit it actually they did a fairly good job with that um so i enjoyed this was the first of those scenes where you have these two guys speaking russian and Ackroyd and uh, chevy chase are trying to figure out what's going on but it sounded and looked the part i, I like that cool um, i'm glad that there's a little bit of a bright spot in the movie for you um so the the real team um the the a team they get ambushed as well i think uh the female doctor uh, she survives but the her partner is killed and i think her name is karen in the movie uh she runs into austin and they agree to save emmett and complete the mission of course they they do that in a big action scene and then they go on to do their the final mission and here's where we get to the nuke the nuke stuff so after they rescue emmett the, the whole team austin Emmett and Karen, they run into the SS-50 long-range rocket mobile launcher that we meet at the beginning of the movie. And Ackroyd's, his horse, he knows the stuff, right? He, he knows all these things. He's, he's looking through binoculars. Right. And he says, That's an SS-50 long-range rocket and mobile launcher. They just moved it in here. Haven't even put up their locator beacon. Means they're not hooked into Soviet defense chain. Wait a minute, what are we doing here? This is our final objective. Our project orders are to subdue the crew and seize control of this emplacement. Hold it, sister. We're not going near that thing. That missile is tipped with a 40-megaton fission-fusion nuclear warhead. Good night, everybody. Where are you going? Home. For once, I am in complete agreement with my friend here. I think we should all get up and leave this place immediately. You know what those things can do? Suck the paint off your house and give your family a permanent orange afro. All right, decode this for us, Tim. So a megaton bomb like that would certainly be a fission-fusion bomb, right? It uses the energy from the fission reaction, which is not easy, but it's easier than a fusion reaction. You use the fission of uh, splitting atoms of uranium and plutonium. You use the energy, X-rays, gamma rays, uh, to fuse together two light elements of hydrogen which produces even a larger explosion than you would normally get just by itself. So, that, yeah, that science is all there. But the problem is, is that 40 megatons is insanely high. No one has ever fielded a 40 megaton bomb. Okay. The largest ever 
nuclear detonation, which was simply a test, was is called the code name of it was Tsar Bomba. It was okay. a Soviet uh, test. That was um, 50 megatons, but we've never deployed anything large like that in the field. The largest Russian ever weapon was on the SS-18 missile, which was 25 megatons. The largest ever U.S. weapon was the B-41, which was dropped from an airplane, and that was 25 megatons. So 40 is just huge, right? You might as well say 1,000 megatons. It's, a, it, it's way too big, and it's certainly way too big for anything that they would have had on that kind of a system. So you had mentioned at the beginning that there was this analogous real-life missile system. Mm-hmm. Was it the SS-25, the Sickle? So how does the Sickle compare to the Weed Whacker <laughs> in the, from, the movie, from the movie? Well, I mean, clearly the SS-50 is twice as cool and awesome as the SS-25 because the math is checks out there. So everything is doubly awesome. So the SS-25, this is a, a real-life weapon system. Like I said, it was de- it was deployed officially in uh, 1985. Uh, it's a 20.5-meter-long missile. This can launch a payload of 1,000 kilograms, which is pretty big, a big payload uh, into space, and it can hit a target 1,000 kilometers away. So really anywhere you need to on Earth. Um this particular uh, system is you know, not a 50 megaton warhead. It would often be equipped with a warhead of around 550 to 800 kilotons. So megaton okay. is megaton is a million tons. A kiloton is a thousand tons. So clearly, pretty different. Yeah, like two orders of magnitude less than than what they tried to say in the movie. Right, exactly. And the reason why you don't need a 50 megaton bomb, like the reason is because the the Russian weapon wasn't terrible in terms of its accuracy. It was 900 meters, which is called of CEP, circular error probability, which meant that if you would draw a circle with 900 meters as the radius, 50% of the time the warhead would land in that circle and 50% it would land outside that circle. 900 meters isn't terrible when you have a warhead of that particular size. Um, The only reason you would need a much larger warhead like that is because you were trying to destroy a hardened target like a missile silo like the u.s silos but road mobile missile systems are often not designed to be a first strike weapon something to try to start the war and destroy the enemy's weapons before they can get to you these things the whole theory behind road mobile systems is that they would be designed to improve deterrence and war fighting by making it a much harder target because most weapons the the united states or anybody that has like a ballistic missile it follows a ballistic path right you, you point a target you shoot it into space it doesn't really course correct all that much there's a little okay. bit of stuff just to kind of make sure that it's it's hitting its target once it's in the air and once it's in space it follows like if you were to throw a ball into the you know across the field it will follow the path and it won't really change that particular path so if your target moves then you can't really know where that is and you have to try something else you have to try to drop a bomb from an airplane or use a cruise missile which has a little bit of capability to adjust but really not a moving target the reason why you have a road mobile system is because you get these things when there's a crisis they normally all these trucks are at a base there are actually at nine different bases in the Soviet Union. There's a crisis. You scramble them. You get them on the road. They go on a combat patrol. Uh, and you don't know where they are. So it's much harder to actually hit them. Um, and that's kind of why the Soviet Union had so many of them. They needed to make these things survivable. And the big the reason why they did that it was because the Soviet Union was not particularly good at building these concrete, heavened, hardened, hardened silos that the U.S. could where they put their missiles underground. So they had to come up with something a little bit better. So let me ask you, Tim, why... First of all, did did the U.S. build anything analogous, like these kind of mobile launchers? And second, I think you mentioned at the beginning that the U.S. went more with the different route. Why didn't we follow the same kind of strategy as the Soviets here? 
So since the 1960s, the United States and a lot of the people, uh, maybe in the Air Force in particular, were like, yeah, let's build a road mobile system. It's cool. Like it's there's there, there are benefits to it being uh, something that you could you can easily survive a first strike because you get them on the road and you're, no one's going to be able to find them. I thought about that since the 1960s. The civilians, the military officials at various points debated about that. But really, it was a combination of three things. One was bureaucratic rivalry between the Air Force and the Navy. They both wanted a slice of the nuclear budget. So they both had the competing systems. One of them was the Minuteman silo under the ground weapons, the rockets that you have out in the missile fields in Colorado and the Dakotas. And the Navy had the Polaris submarine rocket system. Road mobile system wasn't ready and it was new in the course of kind of conflict amongst bureaucratic budget fighting. The Air Force knew that the missiles in the ground worked. So they put all of their eggs in that basket. And the Navy said, I got the Polaris system. We'll get that going. And then eventually Polaris got so good, it became the thing that was the quote unquote survivable, doesn't have to get destroyed by a first strike. It can be in the ocean. You don't know where they are. And it can respond to retaliate against an incoming attack. Once that was sorted out, there was no longer a justification to have a road mobile system because it's redundant on top of the other thing. They kept trying uh, over the years to get this system going. There was eventually, in the early 1990s, there was a system called the MGM-134A Midget Man. It was called the Midget Man because it was smaller than the Minute Man. This was in prototype development in the early 1990s, but of course, the Cold War ended and the program was canceled in 1992. So yeah. there's a lot of history there about kind of why they, they tried with certain systems. And there was even to the point, you know, you might be interested in this, in addition to road mobile systems, the United States also really heavily looked into putting a ICBM missile inside of an airplane, like commercial okay. airplanes kind of thing. Like, you know, like it's like a C-130, because then what the idea is, the C-130 kind of like always is in the air and then it gets dropped out of the back of the plane because it's already in the air. And so much of the energy you need to launch a rocket is literally to get it from the ground into the air. Sure. That was one of the tracks that people looked into. We also looked into having vast canals of waterways and the missiles would hide in the waterways. Okay. The Russians also have missiles on trains. Uh, the United States talked about that, having maybe some missiles on some trains. But yeah, we didn't end up uh, building any of those. Uh, we really just stuck to the big four, which eventually became the big three. We had stuff in the army that was like art- rocket artillery, and uh, we had submarines that were built. And we have those today. Uh, we have the the bombers, and we have the missiles that are in the ground. So that's kind of how we ended up. It's interesting from a from a non-educated person on this this kind of stuff because uh, you see a lot of other you know the fighter jets look similar the tanks look similar mm-hmm. it's interesting that there'd be two very different approaches to something that you, you figure there'd be you know just one way to do it but it's interesting that they went we and the soviets went down two different paths i mean certain countries are at the mercy of geography you know the united yeah. kingdom couldn't have missile fields because it's not very sure. big the idea of a missile field is you have a huge area where you can put missiles that could launch um, in silos, but you spread them out so one warhead from the enemy couldn't destroy multiple ones. And you need lots of land to do that. The United Kingdom doesn't have that. France doesn't have that. So all of their stuff is in the United Kingdom are in submarines because they have ports. And French had most of their stuff in uh, submarines and airplanes. Chinese, a lot of their stuff is in road mobile systems because they have lots of mountains that they can hide these road mobile systems in, and they don't have a lot of ground-based silos. 
but they have submarines now and um, they also have aircraft. So really it became down to what can you build and what works out well for you. At the India and Pakistan are mostly focused on, I think Pakistan, most of their stuff is on um, aircraft that can drop. Uh, the Indians now have um, a little bit of everything, but they don't have, you know, they don't have, they don't have everything. So it kind of some, you can't have to pick and choose. Yeah. The, the, the other benefit of road mobile systems is you have, you can have a build, you can build a bunch of trucks. You know, it's expensive to build a weapon, a nuclear weapon and a missile. But if you just build a truck and you have like a fake empty tube on the top of it, maybe you fill it with concrete, you can then have that be a potential target. So you have these missiles that are essentially on the back of a truck a chassis. Uh, the SS-25 was actually seven axles. It's huge. This thing can, can carry a lot of a lot of stuff. And on top of this chassis, and these are designed for cross-country travel, probably not through the woods or anything like that. On top of them is something called a transporter erector launcher, TEL or TEL. The rocket is always, you know, usually horizontal. In the movie, it, it just looks like a missile on top of the back of the truck. SS-25 system missile is actually in a tube because the idea is you, you sit it in a tube, it kind of protects the missile the enemy doesn't really know if inside the tube is a real missile or not so that way you can have decoys that go around you don't really know whether or not there's actually a missile on top or anything and the erector would would get to a spot where it goes to launch it would then you know make the rocket go vertical and then it would launch and if you have it in a tube the tube gets destroyed you throw the tube off and then you can reload another missile inside another, another tube. It's called cold launching. And that way you don't actually destroy the system. In the movie, they you can see clearly the TEL is destroyed uh, once they go to launch it a little right. bit later. Um, the other thing that's different from the movie versus the real life is that there's also a global command system that's that follows the truck. So usually there's the missile launcher truck. And then there's this mobile command post. And this is something that gets set up and you get all the, the the different satellite dishes that come up out of this thing. And that's a whole set of crew that work that as well. Okay. And that's something you have to kind of go along with it. But what it does, it allows you to launch separate, completely independent from your home base of operations. I mean, in the movie, there's kind of the only people you see around this missile, there's this team yeah. of Russians. It's like <laughs> Emmett, I think, says it's three men, their mother, and then the scan clad woman because of course you're just gonna put that in there vanessa angel who is very much not russian yeah. uh yeah. you ever see the movie kingpin yes she's the uh the the woman that goes with quaid and uh, okay and then whole crew uh quaid right. and Her woody harrelson but in this movie it's i think it's her first movie she plays a, a russian missileer i don't think she has one speaking line in it uh which is interesting but yeah uh, not she's so not much. she's not she's not there to talk um the but but this like this crew right and they're all kind of sitting around they like build a campfire next to the thing and they're drinking vodka and like singing and dancing as they're spying yeah. on them is that at all realistic that they would just be out there with this missile or i was trying to find about what was the size of the missile crews on these road mobile systems it's a lot more than the number in the movie the number in the movie i think was like four or five it's larger because there has to be people that work both the missile and this mobile command system. Okay. Which is why the Russians, even though that they built these things, they didn't build, you know, thousands of them. Um, even at their peak, there was about 288 missiles, uh, road mobile missiles of the SS-25s. They were based at nine different bases in the Soviet Union, and they haven't been made since 1994. But they're still actually in service, but not for much longer. We're recording this in 2020. Uh, I think in 2022 is when they're going to be replaced by a new system called the SS-27. Okay. Not the SS-50. They haven't gotten that high yet. Uh, just the SS-22. And that was a, a new system that's designed, uh, ironically, kind of a twist for what we'll talk about here in a second for the movie Spies Like Us. The SS-27 is 
uh, part of its payload will be a, a bunch of decoys that are meant to confuse a missile defense system. There'll be a bunch of like fake things that look like warheads in space that are going to confuse any sort of kind of incoming uh, missile uh, defense system and all that stuff. It's definitely more people uh, in real life versus this crew. And the other thing is just like these missiles don't just like go hang out and, and drive around by themselves. They're they're on either a combat patrol. You don't have to hide these things because you just don't know where they are. Or when you when you hit them, you have to like know where they are when your missiles can hit them when they're you know, you have to know where they're going to be, sure. uh, which is a lot harder. Um, these things often are based simply at their home base of operation, and they can actually launch from their base. They they drive under uh, like a canopy system, and it allows them to still launch. But yeah, it's it's a comedy, right? So you got these, you get the people around the campfire. They're like trying to identify and listen to uh, like American rock and roll music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of so fun, I guess. Back to the movie. Mm-hmm. So while this team uh, of Russians is there with the missile, Karen, the, the spy, she reveals that the mission is going to be to seize control of this ICBM to secure the freedom of every American. I have no idea what that means. And no, well, I don't think, I don't think is... they even know, right? They're just told that this is what they're supposed to do. This is a pretty serious thing, by the way. This is like an act of war. Yeah, um, but whatever. They're they're idiots, so they're going to go along with it. Uh, Austin doesn't want to get too close to the dangerous warhead, but they're already, I mean, well within the yeah. bad area. Yeah, according to Nuke Map, which is a fun website I know that you're familiar with because I talk about it all the time. You can go to it. Uh, it's created by Alex Wellerstein. But you can plug in a bomb and a target, and you can see what the effects will be. Um, according to this uh, 40 megaton bomb, you got to be like five miles away to not even be immediately vaporized. Okay. Uh, they have some sort of plan to take over the system, and it involves um, a nighttime raid with trank darts and the way they're going to distract the guards is to dress up like aliens from a ufo and it's just a scene of people in these like big most of this movie i think is made so that dan Aykroyd and chevy chase can dress up in like traditional tajik uh like coats yeah exactly there are a lot of large coats in this movie for some reason, they're able to get glow sticks and Christmas lights from somewhere, and they pretend to be aliens, and this freaks out, right, the Russians, because I guess they're confused and think that these people, which are clearly just people, are aliens, but it distracts them enough to uh, be shot by, by darts. The the uh, the Russians are also drinking a ton of vodka, so that's it. That that'll do it. Well, we've all been there. They capture the 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 ICBM, and then they're told that they have to enter launch codes, which I guess they have. They have launch codes for the Soviet missile. They launch it, a missile into space. Go with numbered sequence, seven four dash seven four dash eight eight three dash five dash three. And then they all of a sudden go, uh, what did we just do? I think we just started World War III. She wants to know why we would do such a thing. Tell her so do we. And here, up until now, there's a lot of, like, even though they're talking about the, the A team and the B team, we still have no idea what the whole plot is. And now it starts to come together. You, well, you go back to this drive-in movie theater, the military officials there, they issue the override codes to tell command that this is a false alarm, yeah. that, that the missile has launched. So clearly something strange is going on. SATCOM confirms an outbound blip from Soviet Central Asia. It's on its way. 
Override all SAC alerts with error stand-down orders for 10 minutes. SAC override code entered. Yeah, and then the whole drive-in all of a sudden becomes like this laser system where there's a big laser, there are mirrors, uh, everything gets set up to, to launch an attack uh, against this incoming you know, missile. The missile actually looks pretty good at the beginning because a lot of these t- movies, it's just the missile as it gets launched from its uh, silo or from its launcher, it's the thing that travels through space and then hits the ground. Like you see in the uh, Superman movie that we watched, Superman 4, this one actually breaks up into a series of stages, except it doesn't keep going. It kind of stops somewhere in the middle. So you get like half of the rocket. A warhead often just looks like um, an ice cream cone with no ice cream. And that okay. little pointy triangle thing kind of travels through space. But but the uh, the spies, they don't know what's going on. They think something's about to happen. They know that World War Three is going to happen. Austin does the math to determine that it's going to be 28 minutes until the missile reaches its target. It's 4.47 a.m. They're saying it'll be 28 minutes before the rocket detonates above its target somewhere inside the continental United States. Let's see, 28 minutes. That's 18 until it's inside the U.S. radar cup. Figure two for our response. Say 20 until total commitment. Yeah, figure 20, 22 until the first impact of our retaliatory strike. I figure we have 42 minutes until the end of civilization as we know it. Which actually is pretty accurate. The movie says that it's 18 minutes until it reaches U.S. radar. Uh, that's probably closer to 15, but still it's pretty close. Um, they say it's two minutes for the U.S. to respond. Usually that means it's actually closer to two to three minutes, according to most open source. And that means they talk to the president. They go through the options. The president makes a decision. All of that has to happen basically within like four to five minutes. The movie says it takes 20 minutes, but I don't really know what this means. They say that 20 minutes is a total commitment. But the point is, is that it gets actually pretty close uh, to how long it takes. It takes about four to five minutes from once the president says, all right, we're going to launch. And the president completes their authentication usually with the nuclear football or maybe they're on the mobile command system or maybe they're at the Pentagon or this uh, situation room. Four to five minutes for the missiles to get out of their silos and about 15 minutes for submarines to surface and launch. And then they say it takes about 20 to 22 minutes until all of the U.S. missiles end up hitting. So anyways, that's pretty close. But all of this math eventually kind of catches up to them and then they realize, oh, we only have about 25 minutes until the end of the world for them. So let's uh, spend those last kind of 40 minutes or so breaking into small groups and they all kind of go into different tents to yeah adult time uh enjoy your last few minutes on the on the earth with the stranger you uh want to go out with a bang but hopefully right the missile defense system works well okay so it doesn't <laughs> surprise <laughs> surprise but I, what i don't understand is why is this elaborate plan to like hijack and launch a real russian missile to do this, why not just t- do a test with a? You set off your own missile that doesn't have a nuclear warhead. Why does that have to be this live yeah. test? I I know Which there was what like we do. This- when we test a missile defense system. A missile usually leaves Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and then they try to shoot it down. They kind of explain this. There's like this crazed general who's like, you know, oh, we, you know, we we don't want the. Um, Nuclear weapons are no good just sitting around. A yeah. nuclear weapon sitting around is wasted. Uh, and apparently there was a, a study commissioned by the Schmechtel Corporation, <laughs> which is a yeah. uh, it's a spoof on Bechtel, a real-life corporation. Yeah. We missed it, sir. We missed the rocket. It didn't work. We better call the president. We're not calling anyone. What do you mean we're not calling anyone? The president must know that this attack was not initiated by the Soviet Union. We are prepared for this contingency. What in hell do you intend to do? 
I mean, you understand, sir, that we are responsible for launching a nuclear weapon against our own country. No one outside this command center has that information, gentlemen. When we commissioned the Schmechtel Corporation to research this precise event sequence scenario, it was determined that the continual stockpiling and development of our nuclear arsenal was becoming self-defeating. A weapon unused is a useless weapon. SACOM confirms all defense systems. Commitment ready. We have verification. The president is aboard the Airborne Command Center now. I'm sure it'll only be a matter of minutes before the president commits to total release. Right. They're just like, oh, no big deal. And I'm almost wondering, do you think that the the generals sabotage the test so that this is their excuse to start World War Three? I mean, I, they didn't ever explain any of this, but I was wondering that myself when I watched it. Well, it's a great question. This general I mentioned at the beginning, who uh, who's pretty great in the movie, he's played by an actor named Steve Forrest, who actually looks a lot like the the actor that plays General Jack D. Ripper uh, in Doctor Strangelove. In Doctor Strangelove, the plot of that is is that General Jack D. Ripper orders his heavy bombers, his B-52s, to attack Russian targets, and then they're not able to recall the bombers. And that's kind of his whole plan, because he wants to, to force the President of the United States to make a commitment to go full nuclear to start World War Three and not let the Russians uh, retaliate. So you, he wants to start World War Three because he feels it's inevitable. I guess they could be channeling that, but my impression was that they were comfortable with the, if it didn't work... But if it would have worked, they also would have been fine with that, too. I, I don't really know. It, they missed it by, a, like, a, a pretty big distance. And I think that might have been a joke, like, oh, Reagan's missile defense system, even as, as much money you put into it, it doesn't work. That kind of sounds like the politics of a Dan Aykroyd and Dave Thomas. Maybe this movie was an elaborate, like, sick burn on Because at the beginning of the movie, Chevy Chase is watching that clip mm-hmm. of Ronald Reagan singing. Maybe we're actually in a, a Starship Troopers-like situation where this movie was like Ooh. deep, deep uh, commentary and we missed it because we we're just like, oh, this is a crappy movie. But actually, <laughs> like they're trying to say something really deep and meaningful here and we're just sitting here like crapping on it. I mean, it's funny because you you actually have in real life, uh, when we do a missile defense test, it's not like the guys and gals who are are running the missile defense system are sleeping or they're at their desk and they don't know when the test is going to happen. It's not like they don't know exactly where the missile is going to travel and and what they don't know the telemetry. Like, of course they do. They know everything. They know where the missile is going to be. And they often still miss you know, more than they'd hit the, their targets, even with all of that, because they knew the, where the target was. They knew because they, they told them the, the launch path to, to fire. They still missed. The only other thing I wanted to mention was that in the missile defense system, uh, you see two people use like the two man rule where there's two keys being turned at the same time. That makes a lot of sense when you're launching a weapon because you don't want one person to launch it. You want two people to do it. It does not make any sense when you're trying to hit an incoming missile because the window you have to do that is so narrow. You automate that. You don't have two people have to fumble with keys to launch the system. Like it's just really weird. It does make for a good movie though. Uh, Yeah, We love love our two keys. It builds drama nicely. I'm kind of, I can't convince my wife to let me uh, put a two-man key rule on the front door of our house. And you'd have, like, passcodes and everything. Yeah. If if you had your way, if you had your way, your wife would be, your poor wife would be walking around with a briefcase, like, handcuffed to her arms all the time with, like, codes for stuff and... It, life would not be very uh, fun for her. Well, you never check the inside of my uh, coat pocket. I've got the biscuit with the nuclear launch uh, the authentication codes in oh my, my pocket. God. The next time, the next time you see me in a suit, you know, pat, pat me down, and you'll you uh, or maybe not, maybe not. Oh wait, wait. wait. <laughs> 
Uh, well, anyways, right. the the president is now told that there is an incoming missile, and the president is now making the decision above the airborne command post to launch a retaliatory strike because the president doesn't realize this is some sort of secret attack actually started by our own spies. He thinks the Russians are just launching an attack for no reason on Detroit. Fortunately, again, in the afterglow of their uh, conjugal visit in the tent, Austin, he's kind of uh, lamenting accidentally starting the end of the world uh, with nuclear war, but he says he's at least happy uh, that he can rub it in the nose of his high school guidance counselor, uh, who he proved them wrong, that he actually ended up doing something with his life. Hard to believe it's been only 15 minutes since I destroyed the world. In another 15 minutes, it'll all be over. Such a short time to destroy a world. And to think my high school guidance counselor said I'd never amount to anything. Just goes to show... Guidance? Source programmable guidance! Fitzhugh! Boyer! Get up! Get up! That triggers something in his head that he can use the ground programmable guidance system and recall the missile. And there's a bunch of, like, techno babble uh, that happens afterwards. He says, I think we can recall it. What do you mean, recall it? Mean like a defective Pinto? We can divert it. It's made to respond to in-flight commands with our SAT relay network. All we have to do is switch sending boards. Start sending the launch sequence in reverse order. Yes, sir. They cause the missile to kind of fly further into space and detonate. All of the U.S. and Russian missiles also are recalled. Um, again, kind of we'll talk about whether or not you can actually do that. SATCOM confirms destruction of the inbound at Zulu, 3,000 hours. What about the rest of their inbounds? They are none, sir. Both the U.S. and Soviet response chain on full recall. Damn. Recall. The military officials are upset, but then the army breaks in and arrests everybody and everybody kind of goes to jail what i don't understand is why this why don't why didn't austin stop the the launch from happening beforehand like why wait until afterwards and he only had i guess actually seeing the missile launch gave this realization for some reason i think there's two things one um he didn't realize that what they were doing maybe he thought they were going to launch this into the ocean perhaps okay. they didn't know it was going to hit detroit and two, sure. I mean, who knows what's going on with this one? But anyways, uh, everyone's saved. And we get this kind of quick scene at the very end of the movie. There are disarmament talks at, the, at Geneva. There's lots of press outside of a door. Chevy Chase comes out and says the negotiations are difficult. They're tense. But we might be able to get, you know, nuclear negotiations to end all uh, weapons in the world. Because we, we came so close, right? Uh, Mr. Fitzhugh. Hi, Ed. Uh, everybody at home is uh, most anxious to know how things are going in there. Well, Ed, right now we're at an extremely sensitive juncture. And, of course, the slightest misperceived phrase or gesture could upset everything we've achieved today. Now, if you'll excuse me, Ed. Thank you, Mr. Fitzhugh. Thank you, Ed. And it turns out that Emmett, as the U.S. Uh, chief State Department negotiator, him and Austin are uh, just in this room. And instead of actual negotiations, they're playing some sort of game that's like a mix of trivial pursuit and risk with the people we met earlier from the the mobile launcher crew. They've all been promoted and they're playing this game that if you answer a question correctly or incorrectly, it determines whether or not your missiles are being taken out of the uh, certain countries. What Little Richard song was the title of a 1950s movie starring Jane Mansfield. Great Balls of Fire? Wrong! It was The Girl Can't Help It! Sorry, you lose Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. 
Um, yeah, it's a pretty novel way of, of tackling the nuclear arms race, but you know, it's just nice to see everybody get a bunch of promotions. Yeah, yeah. everybody makes out at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's just it's a weird ending. It's a weird ending. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, we already talked about the launchers. We talked about a bunch of nuke stuff. Tim, there's some other stuff here. I mean, first of all, this this whole rogue plot, yeah. the, the the rogue nuke plot to, to have this weird test that happens. I mean, what's your take on this? Well, it's, it's bonkers, right? Uh, it's silly. You know, it's a comedy, sure. But it also just, if your comedy doesn't have, that the plot is like, what? What is this? This doesn't make any sort of sense. Maybe, maybe it's just me, but that distracts a lot from the jokes because you have to have some kind of backbone to why something makes sense. Like it'd be as if instead of in uh, Chevy Chase's movie, National Lampoon's Vacation, instead of him going on a vacation to Wally World, he was like, we're going to dig a hole in the middle of the desert and we're going to go to the center (laughs) of the earth. And here's how we're going to, like if that was his vacation, you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But there's some funny jokes about whether or not they're hitting the mantle or something. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, but like it's weird. It's a weird plot. Um, I I don't understand it because either the CIA and the military people if the test worked and they destroy the missile i guess they would look like heroes because they saved the day with this like off the books missile defense program like you told us we couldn't build it but we built it uh please don't please don't put us in jail because we saved the end of the world but then all of a sudden you're kind of stuck with this scenario where you have a missile system and now the russians and the chinese and others are going to be really upset that you have this system that can destroy their their missiles all of a sudden because now yeah you know the one thing about missile defense is that ronald reagan liked missile defense because he thought if he could build a system that could destroy any incoming missiles and hopefully anyone else, other people could also build that then we don't have to worry about nuclear war anymore because people would just shoot down missiles. Other people who promoted missile defense thought, well, look, if we have a great shield, that is actually kind of like an offensive weapon because we could launch a first strike and destroy 70% of their weapons and then the shield would protect against the final amount and therefore we can win a, a nuclear war. And that's why the Russians and the Chinese are so upset about missile defense is because if you have a missile defense, you no longer have mutually assured destruction if right. one side can destroy their incoming missiles. So therefore, you have to have better weapons, more weapons to overwhelm the system. That's why missile defense is a very contentious system, why you don't actually see it, other than the fact that it doesn't really work. This team of rogue generals and intelligence officers can save the day. You're still left with the impression, though, that the Russians did a first strike against the United States. Yeah. So then you would start World War Three, kind of no matter what, yet it's an act of war. Or you have to reveal the spy plot and then kind of risk the consequences of striking in your own country. And then the Russians and the and the, the president of the United States would be really upset. It didn't seem like the military's plan was to start World War Three at the beginning, but I don't know. If it is, it's just Dr. Strangelove, which is already a comedy, but instead of it being a comedy that comments in a satire about our, our actual deterrence system, it just parodies that and it doesn't really make much more sense of that. It's a parody of a parody that doesn't really work all that well. Well, from and just from the layperson perspective, I mean, even the scenes where they're the they're in the command center and there's the DIA people and the, the generals, mm-hmm. there's there's no humor there. It's it actually it just feels like a serious movie. Right. Whereas at least Doctor Strangelove, it's it's funny when you see the people like bickering and talking and everything. I, like for a comedy, they should have at least had some level of humor and silliness with this like missile defense but it was almost like a half like a the serious movie got spliced in with a zany comedy and it just didn't it didn't work the reason like something like go, going back to ghostbusters i mean 
the all the the stuff they're fighting is like just crazy and silly a giant marshmallow <laughs> whereas here it was like a real you know it was something you'd see in a james bond movie it just didn't work for me that way it still doesn't make any sense it also doesn't make sense to me like how did the army figure out what was happening that quickly in the middle of when yeah. they thought world war three was starting why why is that a priority for them if i think that actually the world is ending yeah um, it's there's a lot there that everything kind of wraps up pretty quickly but the thing that you know really gets my uh gears going uh grinds them you would say um is is in a movie where there's a recall of a ballistic missile you cannot recall ballistic missiles once they are launched especially the the long-range nuclear ones and because there's a concern that if you put a recall option maybe it's like a radio or a red aboard button or something is the plot of this movie people are concerned that the en- the enemies will figure out your code and they will figure out some kind of way to abort the missile right it, it doesn't hit its actual target they've they've talked about this people who design missiles they've talked about well there could be an active recall where you push a button and it sends out a signal and that destroys the rocket then there's maybe a passive system that what will happen is is that the missile will detect a signal that says go 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 like continue your path that then you can shut off and then the rocket will stop working but then what if you jam that signal you know this debate has been happening and that's the reason why it's important this is not just a a nitpick really it is important for people to realize that a president has so little time to make a decision about what to do in the middle of a launch like we talked about it's like three to four minutes for them to make that decision because of the narrow window of launch they only have like really five to ten minutes to make the decision whether or not to end the world if they make that decision and they have to make it quickly because of the way that we structure our deterrent system and then we realize it's a false alarm or it's some sort of weird zany plot that the generals are doing there isn't a recall button we're screwed you know, that's why it's so tense how close we've gotten so many times during this Cold War. And even after the Cold War in 1995, there was the Russians thought that we had launched a missile coming at Moscow, but it was like uh, it was a weather satellite out of Norway. Um, we thought that a flock of birds coming across the, the Canadian uh, border was an incoming bomber strike from the Russians. So we scrambled and fig- eventually figured it out. But, you know, like these are the kind of scary moments that people, if they just watch a movie, they're just like, oh, well, you know. We'll just recall the missiles. It's not a problem. It doesn't work that way. It's always a minor nitpick, but it's if you talk to a lot of people, as I do, when we get to our uh, when we used to be able to get together, at, like say a barbecue. Remember those things? Yes. Yeah. Those fun. Those fun. Yeah. Now we just eat meat, roasted meats on Zoom, staring at each other awkwardly. Mm, he can't get that smell uh, good across Zoom. <laughs> exactly. But when we used to chat about this stuff, you know, I would ask people, like, if you think a missile could f- could be recalled, you can recall a bomber up to a certain point. And that's the reason why we have the one of the reasons why we have bombers is because you can signal to the other side. Look, I'm serious about starting World War Three. You need to back down. I have my bombers in the air. And then you can send them a code that recalls the the bombers up to a certain point until the point where they go past the point of no return. Um, you can't do that with missiles. So people that think that you could hit an abort button at the last second, that Tom Cruise uh, in the Mission Impossible movies can hit that red button to shut everything down, it doesn't exist. So we better be really careful about what we do and maybe don't have our missiles on this hair trigger launch within two seconds, both from a technical perspective as well from a deterrence policy perspective. So, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say on this other than that's all the new stuff that i got anything bad it's just a bad cap to a pretty lame movie but it is cool to see the road mobile system in a movie there's not a lot of movies that show that system okay and and in particular because 1985 was when this really started 
with the Russians. Um, they had real mobile systems that were short range, like scuds. And, um, but it's just kind of really interesting to see it in a movie. And I, I really can't think of a lot of other movies that have this. But that's the nuke stuff. Let's do our parking lot movie discussion. Let's talk about the non-nuclear things. This is the kind of stuff that I would do uh, when I was in high school and we would go watch a movie. And when we were done with it, we would hang out in the parking lot and talk about it before we went our separate ways. First question I have for you is the actual original ending to this movie. And I couldn't find uh, the script or a scene of this somewhere on like on YouTube or anything. But the okay. original en- ending to this movie was actually they would they weren't able to recall the missile and the world ended. But test audiences, uh, and again, I, d- I don't know if this is true but this is where it is. this is what the internet says it was the original ending test audiences did not like it so they had to film another ending that we do see in a soundstage in Burbank do you think the, a darker ending would have uh, like a la Doctor Strangelove which is ends with the end of the world basically unless you were able to get in one of the bunkers in one of the mine shafts do you think that would have saved this movie would that have been like oh that's kind of funny or was the ending that ended up happening something that you prefer no, I mean, I don't think it would have saved it. I, to me, the the real issue with the movie is just a lack of more like natural, funny situations that they get put into. And even the way that Austin ends up saving the day, it's not by anything funny or silly. It's just he has a brilliant idea and, and executes it, right? And that would have been even more confusing. This like, what is this? Is this a comedy? Is this some sort of, uh, you know, deep existential thing? Is this a commentary on, on uh, you know, nuclear disarmament and nuclear threat? I, yeah, it, it, I don't think by the time you get to the end, there's nothing that could have saved it for me, at least. I don't know. What about you, Tim? What, what do you... I think that it would have been kind of funny to see uh, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase's characters trying to make it uh, in the world, maybe like the end of the world, and they're in a bunker, but they're still doing their nonsense, uh, trying trying to be the best spies out there. But I don't know. I, I guess the, the original ending is probably a little bit too dark. I have to see what, what happened. Like, if the world just ends and that's the end of the movie, that's not as good, but it would have been fine for a sequel. It could have been like another one of those road movies, but it's like the road through the apocalypse uh, and them trying to be zany through through the end of the world. It could have worked, maybe. How well do you think uh, that Aykroyd and Chase worked together in this movie? Do you think that there was some good chemistry? Because separately, they're really good. They're, they're on a few other comedies together. Do you think that it works well for th- this team together? I guess originally it was meant to be uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and I actually think that would have worked really well, maybe a little bit of a better chemistry, similar to Blues Brothers. But it would have been funny to see John Belushi as a spy. What do you think about how well this movie goes? Because I know you're a big fan of Community, and Chevy Chase is pretty big in, in that. Um, how well do you think that the team of Chase and Aykroyd work in this film? Yeah, it, it actually did work for me. Um, I, I am a Chevy Chase fan um, uh, from the uh, National Lampoon series. I remember watching that kind of growing up and, and liking him. Although he's apparently not the nicest guy, but mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, I think it worked. I mean, the problem was I was waiting for these good you know i felt like it was building up and they were going to have all these gags set up and they just all kind of fell flat like this, mm-hmm. you know the one where they're doing the surgery it, it was just like a lot of build up and tension and then it wasn't really that funny and it gets cut short by the guy ran the, the patient randomly dying and they get out of it or um you know I, I, there was some stuff like when they get pulled over by the Russian cops and there's some back and forth that's funny, but all in all, I, I just, I was expecting better from this comedy duo, yeah. especially when you start off when they're taking the test together 
and uh, they have that like back and forth. I thought, all right, cool. This is going to set it up. It's going to be, you know, I know what each of them, their role is. Chevy Chase is like the smooth talking uh, clown. And then uh, Dan Aykroyd is the, the serious one, but it just didn't, it never fulfilled itself. I don't know why. Well, this is a good transition to our rating system that we always do. Uh, we want to rate the movies and things we talk about uh, one out of five uh, consistent scale so we can compare across all of the many things we've talked about. We've done over uh, 50 episodes of this podcast now, but because we get super critical about the content, I like to tailor the rating system. I've crunched the numbers here, and I've decided that let's do a scale of one to five doctors in your tent because you've only got one doctor that's not really a very good greeting you know you're just yeah. kind of saying doctor to yourself but if you've got five <laughs> doctors you can get a really good long chain a super critical reaction chain of doctors greetings going which is pretty pretty good it's polite in addition to it being a delight how many uh doctors in your tent would you give this particular movie gabe uh i would say 1.5 it's just it's it's bad without being bad to the point where it's good you know mm-hmm. like it's just right on that cusp if it was worse i'd be able to watch it and just kind of ridicule it but it's like it's just outside of that so yeah 1.5 for me I, this is a real stinker yeah it's, it's not uh i i remember this movie being a lot funnier um i give it two doctors in a tent there's still some funny moments i i think that doctor 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 joke uh, in the tent is is very funny and it's that kind of joke that works really well because it goes on very long but then immediately kind of following that you get that really awkward scene with the with uh chevy chase harassing the doctor and then as you yeah. mentioned that surgery scene just goes on for so long and then it d- doesn't land in anything funny most of the like the training sequences don't make a lot of sense and they're not particularly very funny. The ending is funny with the nuke stuff there, uh, but it's just overall, I have to just give it a two. Uh, yeah. I wish I could do more because I have, in my memory, it's a four. So this going to a two is pretty sad on my part. Yeah. But yeah. You know what I would recommend to people? Uh, there is There are YouTube videos of the missile launch and things like that. Uh, watch that. Watch the doctor scene. You're good. But let's recommend things for people to check out instead of this movie. Um, I've got a couple of things that I'll go to first, but maybe Gabe, you've got some stuff. First, I recommend a, a book by Stephen Pomeroy called An Untaken Road, Strategy, Technology, and the Hidden History of America's Mobile ICBMs. From 2016, Gabe, you asked about why the U.S. B- did not build these, but the Russians did. Most of my information from this uh, for this episode was from that book. It's pretty interesting. He's a historian who writes and teaches on this topic, and it, it goes not into just about road mobile systems, but also all of those like drop a, a missile a, not a, a cruise missile but let's drop an ICBM from the back of an airplane uh, and whether or not that would work um, so I might lend this book to you and you might enjoy that chapter alright I recommend the movie The Man Who Knew Too Little which is stars Bill Murray it came out in 1997 I might have recommended this on the podcast before but it's one of my favorite spy comedies and it actually does hold up and I think it's a funnier take than what this is it basically is Bill Murray is a regular dude who goes to visit his brother in London, and his brother does not like him because he's kind of a a doofus. So he sends them on like a, you know how you have like a murder mystery dinner where you're kind of in the middle of an action, uh, but you're you're really there. You're 
to be pretending to be part of the plot. Well, he sends him on like an improv crew thing where he's going to be a spy and there's going to be improv actors from a local comedy, uh, theater comedy type thing. It ends up getting mixed into an actual spy drama, but he doesn't realize it the entire time. And he ends up getting mixed into some sort of like Russian US hijinks uh, type thing. I, it's really funny and I think it holds up quite a bit. I recommend people play the nuclear war card game. We talked about it on our podcast. It's a game uh, that's from the 1980s um, by Buffalo Games. And if you really want to settle uh, nuclear war over a card game, don't play Trivial Pursuit uh, or Risk Combo. Play this one. It's a lot of fun. And finally, I recommend uh, once COVID is over, uh, go to the International Spy Museum in D.C. I've been to the former location, which was a lot of fun, and this new one, uh, which I want to go to as soon as it's available uh, and safe to do so. A huge location on the waterfront, and it looks really, really cool. Gabe, I think we should we should go there when it's uh, everything's okay. Let's do it. We got to go there. We got to go to the uh, Air Force One uh, thing. Mm-hmm. We, got, we got a list of post-COVID field trips we got to do. All right. So what do you recommend to people? Uh, I think if you want a better kind of spy parody, um, the show Get Smart. Uh, oh, yeah. That was kind of what I was thinking of. This might be more like, you know, um, with some crazy stuff and, and just more silliness. There's no gadgets um, in this movie. There's no gadgets. I know. I know. It's crazy. Um, so, yeah, if you want to if you if you see this movie and then you need something to, you know, refresh your palate, uh, Get Smart. And actually, I was looking there are a few uh episodes of get smart that has some nuclear related things so maybe uh maybe for a future podcast we can uh think about doing some of that sounds like a smart plan to me um (laughs) another movie i I recommend is uh fletch which is stars uh chevy chase and he's not a spy but he's like a cop and he has to go undercover a lot so he has a bunch of zany characters that movie is i I can't that movie is very very funny fletch lives which is the sequel is not particularly very good uh but fletch is quite good well, that's it. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast, Gabe. Uh, where can people find you? They can look up at the D.C. area and see you uh, flying around. Yeah, just look up, find, see the signal, the, the light signal. I, I'm still trying to get my wife to approve a, a bat signal style uh, uh, spotlight, but it's not going that well. <laughs> Good luck. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or uh, maybe um, maybe we're wrong about this movie and you really like it and uh, you're actually a spy and you think this is wholly accurate because this is how you got into the industry and you're actually tapping my phones and you you just want to talk and, and reach out. Well, instead of tapping our phones, you can contact us on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook. I don't know how much longer because I hate Facebook, but we're on Facebook.com slash SuperCriticalPodcast. <laughs> and we're also on email, uh, which is the best way to contact me, SuperCriticalPodcast at gmail.com. And I don't usually uh, like to, to beg about this or to mention this, but it's always good every once in a while if you are on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to the show and you're able to rate it five stars, uh, please do so. It's great to, uh, every once in a while, see that spike of listenership because for some reason the algorithm uh, five-star reviews help that out. But if you don't want to be on record about that kind of stuff, just tell a friend. You have this crazy podcast and maybe they might like it. Um, that's always a great to, uh, to get a recommendation from someone else. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. <laughs>